Wings for the game. Boom. Cash back. New lucky jersey. Boom. Cash back. Even a last-minute ice run can score you some cash back when you use your debit card. And yes, we said debit card. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can earn cash back on everyday purchases. Look, in sports, it's hard to predict who's taking the W, but you know what's guaranteed to win? Discover Cashback Debit. Oh, and did I mention there are no fees? Period. I'm telling you, this one is a game changer. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Well, I am live for now. Farhan will be along shortly. Thank you for joining us. It was a big loss for the Cubs. This is probably it. This is probably it. Their playoff odds are likely to hit 1% for the third time this season tomorrow when Dom LeCision updates his model. And that's despite, you know, a month. I mean, they haven't lost a game in regulation until tonight all month long. Yeah, sure. The Wild have only lost once in regulation their past 19 games. They bumped into an elite opponent, but they played well. They played gutsy hockey tonight, period. Brad Richardson broke his nose came back. JT Miller took a puck in the knee, came back. The fatigue showed, the the hurt showed. Luke Shen dropped the gloves with a very tough customer. The Canucks did everything you could possibly have asked for from them. It just wasn't enough against an elite opponent. And what's interesting to me about this game, just from a hockey standpoint, was the Wild came out and took it to the Canucks for about eight minutes. Like for eight minutes, I was like, oh boy, this could get ugly. And the Canucks, as they've so often done this season, just when I was prepared to write them off, right? Battled back, recovered, dominated play for most of the rest of the first period, controlled things in my mind for most of the second frame. Pedersen, electric. Garland, exceptional. Um, they took the lead. And yeah, that late goal, that was a painful one. No question. No question. Bruce Boudreaux and Elias Pedersen both cited that as a key turning point in the game. They go into the third tide and honestly looked like they were probably going to be the team to break the duck. I know they only had four shots, but I thought they were pretty good defensively. For the first half of the third period, the Wild didn't look like they had much either. They might have had the zone time. They might have had the territorial control, but they were struggling to break down the Canucks defense. And then all of a sudden they weren't. Kevin Fiala puts the whole team in a spin cycle. Brutally frustrating. I mean, this team's had issues. Hey, Faron, mute your line, bud. What are you doing? You, you work in an ice machine? <laughs> I'm here, What are you doing? Yeah, hey, mute look, the I, lo- I can't keep track if I'm muted or not. You keep talking. Well, come on, well, share, share you, the love here, buddy. Mute your own line. Well, I was just trying to, I, I figured you were filling your ice bucket for a bottle of champagne or something. I was like, oh, man, isn't that what I'm supposed to do after Canucks losses? Are you mowing my lawn? You're the negative guy. <laughs> but, but you know what? You, look, you are right. And 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 I think, um, you know, I probably need to uh, clarify some comments that I made in the last show because I talked about culture and character. And, you know, and, and to put that into proper context, I think you and I both know we, that we're 
We're talking a little more about some scarring that has occurred from what's happened previously in the organization, as opposed to player X and player Y hate each other. That wasn't what I was referring to. But we know that there was some baggage about what happened last offseason that's taken a while to, to kind of work its way through the, the, the building or the locker room. And, you know, as, as a new management team comes in and restores the faith in players. And we saw some of that today. You know, you, you pointed out all those moments of JT Miller taking the shot, Brad Richardson breaking his nose, uh, you know, on and on down the line. Like guys felt it. Guys have been feeling it all the way through and they, they stayed there. They kept fighting. They fought for one another. And, you know, like I know people are down, but for them to go on this remarkable run to get to this point where they're now finally done with four games to go. Right. They've gone 78 games and it's been relevant. And it should have been done in December. It should have been done a month ago. Uh, it should have been done a couple of weeks ago. There's been so many opportunities where they could just say enough. Okay, let's move on for, to next year and, and do things a little bit differently. And they didn't. And, and for all the people that are disappointed, and I know you and I have talked about this before, about we can talk about the offseason and the offseason. And, you know, and, and you have said that for this team, it was all about making the playoffs. Anything else is a failure. And from a big picture standpoint, coming into the season, that's fair. But from a from a micro perspective, as I like to say, when you see where this team was at the beginning of December, when the coaching change happened and it was over, a lot of good has come of this. From a standings perspective or a, or a draft perspective, maybe not, right? And you're not going to get to see this team play in the playoffs. I get all of that. And the team is over the cap and they're built to get into the playoffs now, or they at least were paid to get into the playoffs now, even if the roster wasn't necessarily built as such. But for them to get to this point, at game 78 and games have been relevant until now, I think it says a lot. Yeah. I mean, they definitely played really well at times here over the course of, you know, like, okay, so let's, I don't want to do the season recap because we're going to have more, we're going to have time for that when there's garbage bag cleanout day, but today was momentous, right? Like, Straight up and down, their playoff chances are are basically done, basically punctured, right? The moment the Dallas Stars, the LA Kings, and the Nashville Predators get to 96 points, the Canucks will be done, right? And that's going to happen. That's going to happen. All three of those teams are very likely going to get there. So there's no realistic path. There's no realistic path after tonight. And, you know, I would argue that there was really very few realistic paths from November on. And yet, every time I left this team for dead, every time I thought for sure that's it, they found a way, right? There was the, you know, obviously the 20, first 25 games. Then there was that stretch in January and February where they played 500 hockey with some of the best goaltending in the league. And I thought, oh boy, if you can't win games with that type of goaltending, you're not good enough. And then they go on that East Coast trip and they crush the Leafs twice and they win in New York. And, you know, they just kept grinding out points against good opponents, against bad opponents. And then they have that homestand where we all think, oh boy, that, you know, even I thought, oh man, they're, they're gonna they're gonna have a chance here, and they kind of duffed it. And then they go on that road trip again, and they beat Colorado, and they you know fight Minnesota to a point, and they 
you know, beat the Dallas Stars and and then they lose a bunch of games again to the point where, you know, they have this stretch of three wins and 12 games and you thought it was done. And then they just don't lose for three weeks in April. Sure, why not? And it all sort of comes to a head tonight, right? Uh, an absolute must-have game after they dropped a point to Adam Gaudet and the Ottawa Senators. And they played well. Like, there's no way you can look at that game and tell me that the Canucks, you know, weren't at best a coin flip. You know, it was a coin flip game. Like, it could have gone either way the whole way through. Do I think that Minnesota's quality shone through in crucial moments of the game? For sure. Do I think there's things you could spotlight and say, hey, like, that's, you know, those are that's the area where the Canucks need to be better? Sure. But do I also think that the Canucks were extremely tough, extremely resilient, and overall the better team five on five? Yeah, I do. I do. I think they deserve better. Um, and that's pretty remarkable. Like, I know that you can look at those last eight minutes and say the Canucks got sunned by an elite club, which they are not. But as tempting as it is, especially for me, we all know my priors, to do such a thing, I'm really impressed with the performance the Canucks put on tonight. Like, I'm really impressed. I thought the Pedersen line was particularly good sensational even I liked a lot of what I saw from you know Lamico and Lockwood um you know I don't know that the JT Miller line had their best game but in the tough minutes they held their own the Myers Oliver Ekman Larson pair um you know they didn't play together that much but they still played together of course that to me was sort of the biggest problem of the game for from a Canucks perspective um you know, they played 12 minutes together and then they kind of ended up spending a bit of time apart. Um, you know, Tyler Myers was on the ice for a goal with Brad Hunt as well. But, you know, Myers and Ekman Larson, 12 minutes, 43 seconds, outshot four to eight, outscored one to three. Um, some bad luck in there, but that was that was um, certainly the biggest issue for the team tonight, in my mind. Um, you know, I still I still see the flaws here, but you got to appreciate Richardson playing through a broken nose. JT Miller getting uh, a puck in the knee and playing through it. Uh, Luke Shen throwing down with Nick DeLaurier. Um, I, I, I'm just so impressed with the performance we saw from Vancouver tonight that for me, it sort of should take top billing over all of the reasons. And they are, you know, we can go on about them forever, and we will. For all of the reasons that they're going to miss, that they're not going to get it done, tonight, I think, should be used to acknowledge what they've actually achieved, which is, you know, honestly, it's been unpredictable, thoroughly remarkable, and a credit, certainly to Boudreaux, but also to those players in that room, a, a you know, a group of players that typically, uh, while I like a lot of them as individuals, both as people and players, I don't, I don't believe has enough horses to really make a dent. Well, they made a dent and they did it for 52 games and yeah, it's probably over. It's probably over, but they went down fighting and they deserve a fair bit of credit and our admiration for that. Yeah. I, I couldn't have said it better myself. And um, you know, when you look at this, I mean, that Minnesota wild team, they're going to surprise some people in the playoffs, right? Like 
we know what their cap situation looks like for next year. So they're all in for this year. And that's a team that can have some playoff success, especially with Flurry and that as I see it. Um, but, you know, for the Canucks to go in there and the first eight minutes looked really, really bad. You know, I did a, my sports center preview on CSN. I talked about, hey, Demko needs to steal a game at some point because it hasn't happened in the last month. Right. I mean, I go back to the Dallas game in late March where he actually needed to steal. And again, that's not suggesting he's played poorly. I feel like I always have to preface that if I'm not deifying him. Um, he, you know, he hasn't played poorly. He just wasn't needed to steal wins because the team was scoring a lot of goals. Their shooting percentages are really high. And I said, look, they're going to have to steal it because I just thought this game was going to get so one-sided in terms of form, given how good Minnesota's been of late, given how good they've been at home specifically. And it didn't need to happen that way, right? Like after those first eight minutes, you know, they took a few punches. They came back and they played really well. And you talked about it. And in the second period for them to not let those leads linger at all, uh, you know, the one nothing goal, the 2 nothing goal, they answered immediately, or the 2-1 goal, I should say. Um, there was a lot to like. There really was a lot to like. And, you know, they couldn't muster much in the third period. I, and, and both you mentioned, Pedersen and Boudreau talked about the third goal as a bit of an emotionally deflating goal. I want to ask you your thoughts on the goal, because I think it was one you'd like to have Demko make the save. And, I mean, obviously, that's an obvious statement. You'd like him to save everyone, but I think that there was a chance to save that one. Yeah, that you know they crisscrossed on the play, and then Garland kind of got there late, and Myers maybe missed a switch, but it seemed like a shot that could have been saved. Um, you know, wrist shot that went under the arm, and again, third game in four nights. He's been the Canuck MVP, you know, who I voted for without even having to think about it. Um, but that would have been one you just you would have liked your elite goaltender to save because it clearly had a bigger effect than simply tying the game because emotionally this team had been punched so much it couldn't take one more. Well, yeah, and I mean it highlights why Demko shouldn't have played against Ottawa, right? And it's not his it's not anyone's fault that he did, just a freak accident, an injury. But you know we talked about starting Halak in that game and why it was the right call. And I think we saw why in this game, right? I mean, you can't you can't run a guy into the ground when he's that important to your team. You know, you look at the best goaltenders around the league, and their teams are pretty, generally speaking, careful about how they deploy them, right? That's not a coincidence, right? Like, teams are very careful about their usage. And this team has been so reliant on Demko and went through a period there where they didn't trust Halak as well that, you know, they probably ran him out there a little bit too much. I mean, there's only two goaltenders in the sport, two, who've started more games for their teams this season, UC Saros and Connor Hellebuck. And UC Saros, similarly of late, has had some moments where he's looked tired. Connor Hellebuck has often looked tired throughout this season, right? I mean, it's it's too much. Like, it, it just is. It's just too much. You want to hit 65 at the end of the year, maybe. Ideally, you want to be at 60, in my view. So, you know, I, I'm not, I don't blame Demko for getting beat on a goal that he was partially screened on. It was a forward covering the shooter. I don't know that he saw it until it was too late. He obviously got a piece of it, but not enough. But, you know, the last guy on my list of, of people to blame is Vancouver's best player by far this year. Demko's shown himself to be a high-end elite starter. And, and one thing 
one thing, if anything, that gets spotlighted here is, you know, the need to rest him with with the type of discipline that the Canucks attempted, but their best laid plans of mice and men got interfered with, right, this week with the Halak injury. And additionally, the need, the need to support him better. I, I mean, there were games that the Canucks won with their offense. Don't get me wrong, especially over the last two months, but more support in terms of the types of shots he sees, in terms of having a margin for error, in terms of controlling games better. Um, you know, task number one for this management group this offseason now is to build a better team in front of a pretty special goaltender. Let me ask you this, though. You know, there was a lot of debate about what actually happened as far as the goaltending was concerned and the decision because they did bring up um, they did bring up Martin, right? Briefly, so, yeah, yeah. But I'm I'm saying that somebody was sick. The head coach said as much that they brought him up because there was a sickness in play somewhere. Um, should they have forced the issue and just had Martin back up Halak? Just regardless, like give him a full and proper day off. And had that happened. There would have been no – ultimately, they lost the game anyway. I know that's hindsight. But, you know, Martin has been very good for this team whenever he's played and has certainly turned – you know, shown that consistency in his game in Abbotsford. Like, they could have made the decision to just let Martin back up. And then in that moment, he would, Demko would have got a complete rest day and he never would have been put in that situation to play in the last game. I know it's, I know it's hindsight. And, again, I don't even want to blame him for today. Right. Like that was one goal that was a possibility for him to save, you know, and, and I don't know what the, the expected goals numbers are in terms of what went in versus what uh, was expected. But, um, you know, he did look tired at times and it didn't seem like that was a decision that could have been made to prevent this from happening. You know, because for Demko, there's been three, maybe four games this year where he's had to go in for Halak either because of injury or performance. Right. So this isn't the first time they had been through that. So that was a decision, in my opinion, to bring this guy all the way up. You could have just dressed him as the backup and said, Thatcher, you're off completely tonight. Yeah, well, and the expected goals numbers are not pretty, right? I mean, 2.82 expected goals for for the Wild. Actual retail value is five. So, you know, it wasn't Demko's best game by any means. And I'm sure he would tell you that if he still talked after uh, after losses. But, um, you know, nonetheless, he has been so immense for this team all year long. And, you know, I do think that playing him 65 plus games in his first year as a starter was far from ideal, far from ideal. And, you know, sort of does put some pressure on Spencer Martin, who's the, the backup apparent for this club to, to perform next season. I mean, they're going to need 20 games in my view, at least 20, maybe 22 of, of really quality, really high quality hockey from, um, from their backup goaltender. And, and I, I mean, there's no way around it. They need to get that. Yeah, and when we talked about what Demko did for this team early on, especially before the All-Star break, and what he was needed to do, and certainly the team found a way to score some goals after that and didn't lean on him uh, as heavily as they needed to in terms of getting results, but just in terms of minutes played, they still did lean on him heavily, and as you as you should, uh, to a point, right? And you had that little stretch of three games where Halak wasn't very good, and it probably led to a couple of additional starts for Demko that he might not have gotten if at that moment the club was feeling confident in their situation. So uh, either way, you know, Demko has been great for this team all season. He's been clearly their MVP. And, um, you know, I, I'm sure he's as disappointed as anybody because you, you just don't expect five goals 
uh, in this kind of game, regardless of whether they were his fault or not. I'm sure for him, he would, would have loved to have just found a way. But, um, you know, when you when you look at this team and the way they manufacture goals and, and two nights ago against Ottawa, it was kind of the one time in, a, in months and seemingly that Pedersen looked a little quiet. And then, boy, did he put on a show today. Uh, you know, one of the guys that didn't necessarily have to deal with an injury mid-game. But it just seemed that everybody emptied the tank today. Every single player emptied the tank. And what more can you ask in this moment, given the roster that they're icing? Yeah, nothing. Nothing. I mean, yeah. I, I, so let's talk about Fiala. Man, is he good. Man, is he good. Because he looked like he was, you know, about to be uh, in qualifying in the F1 this weekend, right? Like in Rome tomorrow. I was waiting for you to go vroom. Yeah, that was a vroom. A drencher bubble. That was Broom City. I mean, there were definitely moments where this team really struggled to move the puck, right? I mean, if I was going to identify a reason for the loss, that would be number one. But that would be number one in most of the games that this team has lost. And and I think you're right that the focus tonight should be on the resilience and the work rate and the, and the way that so many players battled through injury. And, you know, I mean, they're down a lot of bodies. Now, not that that's an excuse. Right. The Minnesota Wild are down, you know, uh, Matt Dumba and Marcus Foligno and, um, you know, uh, that centerman who's really good. And that other guy, like, I Greenway can't even think of all their Yost. names, but yeah, Greenway's out Greenway and Yost, Yost, yeah. I mean, th- those are better players than the Canucks are missing, frankly. Right. The Canucks aren't missing any one of Dumba's stature. Um, so, well, Bo Horvath's pretty good in terms of what he means to this team. Yeah, you know what? Sorry, you're right. I forgot about both. So, anyway, both teams missing some key pieces. I'm not saying that the Canucks can skate with the Wild if they're healthy. Like, they can't. That shouldn't be controversial. That's not a hot take. But the way that Vancouver battled, considering how shorthanded they were, considering how banged up various guys got throughout this game, I mean, does it change your view of how close this team might be considered to be not just the results under Boudreaux, but the way that they responded and sort of never said die toward the tail end of this year. It's a fair question. And and that's what everybody's going to ask, right? Because this puts a, a bow on what is still a flawed roster. And we've said that all the way through, because this is not a 650 team, the team that you, are rolling out now, and the performance they put on under Bruce Boudreaux, it would be completely naive and foolish to think they could roll the same lineup out a year from now and be able to play 650 hockey and be an actual contender. Because we understand what led them to some of those results, and we also knew that they were playing with a level of desperation for a long, long time. That just isn't how you play 82 games, right? So when I look at it, I think it could potentially affect your opinion on specific players. But it might be, you know, I, I don't think on the collective, I don't know that it can, right? Like Connor Garland finished up pretty well, right? And I know there's still four games to go, but does it change your opinion on Connor Garland? If you were in the camp and thought, this guy needs to be traded. He could give this team $5 million in cap flexibility. Um, you know, uh, Brock Besser after the five-game injury. And, and, you know, I don't know that, I don't know that what Brock Besser's done in the last three games is going to change anybody's opinion. I think they're formulated on whether or not you believe he's going to be worth what they're going to have to pay him based on that $7.5 million qualifying offer. Um, 
do you think he's worth that? You know, has anything happened on this stretch run uh, in the last 20 games or post All-Star break to make you go one way or the other on Brock Besser? Um, Tyler Myers, who, you know, makes mistakes every night. But overall, I think there's been, I think this has been his best year here. I think this has been his best performance in the three years that he's been here this year. Does it change your opinion of him? We understand it's a ridiculously large contract for where he probably should be in the lineup. And theoretically, it's inefficient money, but inefficient money is in the press box. Inefficient money is on your fourth line. Whether he's good, bad, or indifferent, he's playing heavy, heavy minutes. your opinion? Tyron, I believe we've... Oh, we briefly lost you there after heavy, heavy minutes. And we've lost you again. Um, yes, I mean, you're right, though, about Tyler Myers. Like, you're right that... In, I mean, inefficient money. The problem with Myers is not necessarily how inefficient the deal is. It's that he's paid to be a top pair guy. And if he's playing top pair minutes for you the way he did for the Canucks this season and did so admirably, right, was a good soldier, was even effective at times in that role. Like there's a ceiling on how good you can be with that player at that money in that role. Right. I mean, that's the issue that this club encounters there, right? And it's a different issue from the one they encounter with Oliver ekman Larson, who I think really can be, um, you know, a big minutes player for, for on a good team still. But, you know, I don't know that he can be that for 82 games at like 23 minutes a night without you bumping into diminishing returns when the, when the games matter most, which did happen to this team for about a five-week stretch there. Uh, before he sort of rebounded right after the trade deadline, and he's been scintillating in the game since. So, you know, to have $13.26 million locked up on a pair of blue liners whose minutes need to be managed far differently than they are, that's a really tough thing to navigate. And that's, you know, part of rebuilding the blue line, which, which so clearly needs to be rebuilt. I mean, I say it was the Achilles heel tonight. It's been the Achilles heel for me most games they've lost. And, you know, you should think about the impact of a, of a guy like Travis Dermott, right, who comes to Vancouver and just having another guy who can transition the puck with their feet has made a huge difference in the look and feel of this team, right, and the way they're able to attack and the way they're able to clear the zone and the way they're able to support and take fourth man's ice. Um, Travis Dermott is a good player, but he shouldn't be that noticeable on a defense core. You know what I mean? Like, he yeah, shouldn't for sure. change the way that you can play. And he kind of has. And to me, that's just an indictment on the, on the composition of this roster as it's currently set up, which, you know, has kind of been a through line for me throughout this season. Um, let's yeah, and for me, where, for me, where it comes to the two, you know, when it comes to the two high-paid defensemen, I, like, I, you know, they just get paid too much for me to necessarily change my mind. But what I'm saying, which goes back to your first question, is does what's happened under Bruce Boudreau, change how you feel because you and I have certainly taken that the brunt you more so than me. You guys, hey Farhan, you're you're cutting out here. I'm sorry to stop you, but you're cutting out here. We uh, we're just not getting you consistently. Um, in the meantime, I'll carry the show. I'm gonna just go through the chat a little bit, see what we've got. Shortly, we'll open up the um stage uh if you want to raise your hand you'll go into a queue 
and we can invite you up onto the stage and, and answer your questions, which will allow us to have our VIPs, our beloved VIPs, to whom we are so grateful, uh, sort of guide our conversation. Um, but I want to peruse the chat a little bit because I've been busy chatting myself or talking to Farhan, and I've sort of missed a, a bunch of things. I think we've got Farhan back. Farhan, do we have you? Can you hear me? Can you hear me now? I can hear you now. Loud and clear. Good. Uh, no ice or anything like that. But yeah, anyway, like I said, the point I was making in all of this was just in response to your question, because we've certainly heard it, that this team is really good and the coach was the problem, right? Which implies that you don't think that you think Jim Benning did a really good job constructing the roster, which I certainly take issue with. But, you know, it's easy to get caught up record. But while I don't believe you can just view the entire construction of this team differently now than you did four months ago, I think there is room on any given player, uh, specific players here and there for you to view differently and how they fit and their importance going forward with this organization. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think the Garland, Besser, Miller sort of storyline, which has really been a signpost throughout this season, right? Gar those were the guys most speculated about ahead of the deadline. And so I think that will linger into the offseason. Garland is just really, really good. Like, I don't know what else to say about it. Garland is, if not an elite contributor, he's right on the fringes. I thought that play to set up the first Pedersen goal, yeah, of course, it's a world-class finish. Every finish that Elias Pedersen finishes is a world-class finish. But that pass was unreal. Unreal. But, he's, but he's also movable. Relative to everybody else, he's movable. Well, but right. So I mean, I mean, the problem is though, Farhan is like I think a lot of these guys are moving. Like, I think there there might be, especially with the minutes he's logged and the size that he's got. I think there might be a market for for Tyler Myers. I think the way that Tanner Pearson performed, there might be a market for Tanner Pearson. I definitely think there's going to be a market for Brock Besser, albeit a complicated one, as a result of his QO. Um, you know. JT Miller will for sure have a market. Um, Connor Garland does not have to be dealt. Like, I, I think the there are enough players who perform to a point where I do think their value is a little bit different than it was when we were discussing some of these things in January. Now, I'm not saying all of these guys are, like, easy to move without taking cash back. I'm not saying you can move Jason Dickinson. But... Could there be a team that's watched this season and looks at the minutes Myers has logged and say he could help us? I won't be stunned if that's the case. Uh, could there be a similar situation with Tanner Pearson? I won't be stunned if that's the case. And for me, Garland's got to have entered, especially with his level of five-on-five -five production. Uh, the fact that for me, he's the best playmaker on this team and they don't even use him on the power play. Garland, I, you gotta see, you gotta see what Garland looks like in bigger minutes with PP1 role before you trade him. Because otherwise you're gonna risk doing it and get, and he's gonna go to another team, do what he's doing this season, which is high end five on five production, graft 25 even strength points onto it, and all of a sudden you've dealt an 80 point player who drives play. You know what? I, I mean, I don't, I, I really struggle with that one. That's, that's one that I can't wrap my head around. Yeah, look, I, 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 couldn't, uh, I couldn't disagree with you. I mean, I think I've seen some from him. He was a player earlier in the year that I thought, okay, 
maybe it's just not a fit here, right? Like Nate Schmidt's not a bad defenseman, but it wasn't a fit here. And, and you know, you could maybe make that same case, but from what I've seen from Garland of late and all of a sudden, if you lose JT Miller, which many people believe is going to happen, I'm not advocating for it, but many people believe for all the things we outlined pre-trade deadline that it's going to happen. And all of a sudden Connor Garland plays that spot on the power play. How much different does that look? Right. Well, and that's, that's the other thing you, you have, you've given so much opportunity to a guy who turns 30 at the end of next season. Um, and there are a couple of replacements for him who have lesser trade value, presumably in Garland and Besser. And it's like, it seems pretty clear to me what the pecking order should be in terms of priorities there. A question from Ren LP in the chat under what CBA circumstances would we be able to see Jack Rathbone this season? What is an emergency call up? All right. An emergency call up, is a call-up that exists outside of the post-trade deadline roster rules. So after the trade deadline, teams are limited to only four call-ups. Also, the 23-man roster limit is lifted, although the cap, the upper limit of the cap, 81.5 million this season, still applies. So you can have 26 guys under the roster so long on the roster so long as you're still cap compliant, and that's fine. However, you can only call up four guys, and the team has used all of their call-ups already. Uh, Patan, Drys, the silly pod Colson was one because they decided to paper him down. And there's one Will more. Lockwood. Will, Will Lockwood. Lockwood. Thank you. So those are your four. That's done. That's done. Those are all done. So there's no additional call-ups. In order to use an emergency call-up, a team has to fall beneath the level at which they have 18 healthy skaters or two healthy goaltenders. So you're far more likely to see emergency call-ups used in circumstances with goaltenders because it only takes one injury, whereas with skaters, it takes a bunch. It's unlikely at this juncture, considering the players that the Canucks have on the roster right now. Uh, yeah, Patan and Burroughs are still Patan and Burroughs are still there. They're so part the, they're part of the 23-man roster. So. Now, now all of that said, all of that said, there's a lot of guys who are probably pretty hurt, right? <laughs> like there's a lot of guys who yeah. are probably playing pretty hurt. Um, Alex Chason's a perfect example. Like, do you know how hurt you have to be as a hockey player to be a PTO guy on an expiring contract? And all of a sudden you're playing on fuego hockey in a top six role, getting top six minutes in a contract year, and you miss two important games. Like, do you know how, how hurt Alex Chason probably is right now? Do you know how much well, he was sick? He was sick though, right? He was, he was, oh, he was, he was an sick. Illness. Uh, he was an illness, not an injury. Well, do you know how sick he must have been? Holy cow. <laughs> Holy cow. I'm just saying, like, players players do not want to miss games in those circumstances. So I'm sure there's a couple guys who, if you really wanted to, um, could get shut could down get, here. Could, could get sick. Yeah, could get sick or shut down. But um, I don't think we're going to see Jack Rathbone play at the NHL level this season. That's fine. He's cooking down in Abbotsford. And Abbotsford's cooking. And he's going to have a chance to play in the playoffs. He's going to have a chance to, you know, get in a rhythm, something that he's had far too rarely in his in his young pro career to this point. Well, I mean, what else can he prove in a cup of coffee? We've seen him have two cups of coffee at the NHL level. There's nothing he can prove by playing five relatively meaningless games down the stretch, or four as it is. Um, better for him to have a dynamic showing in the American League playoffs. And by the way, speaking of dynamic showings in the American League playoffs, a prediction for you. When Vasily Podkolzin goes down to the AHL, 
he's going to be point per game plus in the playoffs. Like he's going to be the best player on the ice every time the Canucks step on the ice. In, in the Abbotsford Canucks step on the ice, he's going to be the best player on the ice, and we're going to see that. And yeah, I don't, I, I don't. I'm going to be making the drive. I would find, I'd find a way to bring Rathbone up, and and I say that because it's a great statement for the organization to make, right? That we, you know, we're going to pay an NHL salary for a few extra games, but we're going to remind you this is what this league feels like at this level because we want you to be a part of it next year, right? I think it's you know we notice you, we notice what you're doing. A call-up like that, even if it's for a couple of games, is a reward. He's still going to be the star of the American League playoffs on the back end. But I think it would be an, an important statement to make for them to do that. Uh, like, I, yeah, I don't know why you wouldn't. He's the I don't only think it matters. Prospect you've got. He's the only legitimate prospect you've got there that you can consider doing that with. Bring him up. Let him have two to three games right now because, you know, like you say, it doesn't matter. And, you know, I don't want to hear this that we're not done and we're going to wait until we're until – we're, mathematically eliminated because that's not real at this stage like we all played along we all were hope, hoping for better but it is now officially over and they did talk about that at one point that we do want to get him up here for some games so why not the dallas stars of course have lost by the way 4-2 to the calgary flames they are leaving the, yeah, door. the kings are going to lose tonight too it's going to happen no they're up one nothing they're not going to lose i don't know how much chicago blackhawks hockey you've watched of late but they're not going to lose <laughs> And, okay. uh, and then, so, you know, Dallas is leaving the door open here for the, the Vegas Golden Knights in a major way and potentially the Vancouver Canucks. But I think the Vancouver, I think the ship has sailed on that for Vancouver. This was really the last hard game, um, in, 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 until the game with Vegas that the Dallas Stars played. Uh, you know, the Stars, the Stars now have three cupcake opponents and a really important game against the Golden Knights. So they play the Kraken, the Coyotes, and the Ducks, I would expect that they'll uh, get to 97 points, and that should easily eliminate the Canucks. But uh, Vegas is now a thorn in Dallas's side. I think they have a shot. I think I, I like Vegas to make the playoffs at this point, I think, especially with Dallas just barfing all over themselves with their third consecutive loss in Western Canada. Dallas is not good. Dallas is not good. No, they're not. Wings for the game. Boom, cash back. New lucky jersey. Boom, cash back. Even a last-minute ice run can score you some cash back when you use your debit card. And yes, we said debit card. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can earn cash back on everyday purchases. Look, in sports, it's hard to predict who's taking a W, but you know what's guaranteed to win? Discover Cashback Debit. Oh, and did I mention there are no fees? Period. I'm telling you, this one is a game-changer. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank member FDIC. Uh, we have a we have a comment from Gordon. Um, quit emphasizing roster construction. Obviously an attempt to make Travis Green look good. The reality is that the team constructed is easily a playoff team if we had a decent coach. We didn't have a decent coach. Green was bad. Clearly the results under... Boudreaux demonstrated this. Um, the thing is, is that Boudreaux's not a decent coach. Boudreaux's an incredible coach. Boudreaux's the best regular season coach in the NHL and one of the best regular season coaches in the in NHL history. Like, I think this take that all it needed was a decent coach and, and all of a sudden the team would be fine uh, doesn't give Boudreaux his due, right? This was not a turnaround 
that even a even another really good coach like a Claude Julian could have pulled off, in my opinion. This was something Boudreaux could have done and Boudreaux alone. That's my view of it. That's my honest view of it. Um, Gordon then adds, and Gordon's one of my favorite detractors in the in the athletic comments. He's always on me about this, so I'm I'm, I'm giving him um, the attention he deserves as a loyal reader and a loyal commentator. Uh, in terms of a Stanley Cup contender, this is a poorly constructed team. Agreed. But in terms of making the playoffs, this is not a poorly constructed team. Team did not make the playoffs because of the bad coaching by Green. Look, the first 25 games is obviously the biggest reason this team made the playoffs. But you can't ignore either that this team had a ton of stuff going against it in the first 25 games. Most, most crucially, Elias Pettersson being a shadow of himself while overcoming an injury. And yeah, do I think the relationship with the coach played a role in his, uh, in his slow start? Sure. But it still took him another two months under Boudreaux to figure it out. It can't just have been a personality clash. There was more going on there. And when Pedersen goes from being, you know, what he was in the first 35 games of the year to being what he's been in the latter 35 games, I mean, what a difference. Like, how can you say that that's purely on one coach versus another? Clearly, there were health circumstances outside of that. Um, Vesser, same situation, exactly. Um, were there problems for Green? I think for sure. Were there things he'll have to do better the next shot he gets? Absolutely. Number one being that he's going to need to be far less conservative in terms of the personnel that he uses on the penalty kill. I mean, no question about that. That's the biggest place that the, the coaching change has had an impact is that all of a sudden the Canucks start stop shooting themselves in the foot on the penalty. But the idea that this team, you know, if they just promoted Brad Shaw or hired Claude Julian, would have accomplished what they've accomplished under Boudreaux, for me, no chance. No chance. Uh, this is, you know, uh, uh, players get a lion's share of the credit here, but Boudreaux gets an awful lot of it too. I think he's the only guy who could have accomplished this with this roster. And this roster still leaves a lot to be desired. I know the point performance is, is fantastic but when, under Boudreaux, but when you look at the underlying profile, like, man, 18% well, and, and, on the and power play. That, like, Boudreaux has been there, done that in this situation, right? Like, it does take a skill to come in mid-season and, and execute the reclamation project. And what we're going to find with Boudreaux is what does it look like in year two and three? Because that where, that's where it hasn't necessarily gone as well, usually by year three, with those same clubs. So, again, you've got to give him a lot of credit. I totally agree with you that not anybody else could do it. And he's been experienced at doing this. And for me, as I railed enough early on in the year, like at some point, players do need to be accountable. Right. And whether he gave him a big hug and told him, ah, you know what, let's let's just make this a little more casual or whatever the emotional button that he pushed. Right. Like it just shows you the players had more to give. And sometimes I know it's easy. Hey, that's why a coach gets paid. But sometimes the players need to be accountable. Yeah. Uh, by the way, by the way, my eyes and ears at the XL Energy Center have spotted JT Miller limping very badly, leaving the rink. So if you're on the uh, Jack Rathbone train, um, if you're on the Jack Rathbone train, um, you know, I wonder, I wonder if we'll see JT Miller play in Saturday on Saturday in Calgary. One would assume he'd try, but, um, I, I would think after the shot that he blocked with his knee tonight, his status would, would be very much in doubt. Um, which, makes play sense, on crutches. which makes sense. Oh, stop it. Stop it. 
Um, but I mean, he might. He's he's a wild man. He's a wild man. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, let's let's open the floor to questions. I think it's time. Um. All right. We've got Max P here. Oh. Max P, welcome to the stage. Do you hear us? Yeah. Can you hear me? <clears throat> we can. What do you want to talk about, good sir? Um, I just want to talk about uh, Connor Garland first because uh, Drance, I agree with you. Um, I think just trading him would be insane. And um, I wonder uh, what you guys think. I think that Garland is tougher to replace than a JT Miller. Interesting. Thank you, Max. Why? Oh, I just muted him. Max, if you want to raise your hand again, uh, Farhan has a follow up. Well, I just I'm curious. I'm curious to know why you think he's more replaceable. Max than, is back. JT Miller, given everything JT does. Max is back on the stage. Max, why is JT Miller, or why is Connor Gar- why is Connor Garland um, rarer than JT Miller? Max, you there? Nope. Okay. Um, Max has stage fright. Yeah, I mean, if Max, if Max, if you raise your hand again, I'll let you answer far on. But um, yeah, I mean, I disagree a little bit because JT Miller can play center. Uh, that's the that's the biggest sort of difference between those two players for me, and that makes JT Miller a rarer piece overall. But I do think Connor Garland is the better five-on-five point producer, to be totally honest with you. I know JT Miller has more five-on-five points, but uh, Connor, uh, but he plays a lot more minutes, right? Like, on a, on a, on a points rate basis, um, you know, there is no, there's no comparison. So, personally, I would take... Uh, Personally, I think JT Miller is the rarer piece, but and 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 as such harder to replace. But I certainly think there's an argument just based on valuation, age, cost certainty for keeping Garland ahead of Miller. Yeah, that last line is the key, right? Uh, just you know, valuation, age, uh, you know, having that cost certainty, knowing he's going to be here. Um, you know, when you consider what you're going to have to pay JT Miller, what his season this year where's he at 93 points still coming into tonight like what is that what is that going to translate into this offseason we've all been talking about eight times eight and this club simply can't afford that uh, given what that contract would eventually look like at the end of it also yeah i mean from that perspective it certainly makes more sense to continue to invest in garland and there'll be people that think that look does this game translate into the playoffs but these were all critical games down the stretch here and he's played his best hockey yeah, we also had a question in the chat about uh, Vasily Podkolzin's bonuses. Vasily Podkolzin looks like he picked up a dash tonight, uh, which bumps him into a tie with Tanner Pearson for third. Uh, so he'll need to be plus one in the remaining five games. Or is it four games? Four games in order to hit his um, plus minus bonus. As for ice time, yeah, the, the team's sort of got some injuries piling up. Um, he would still need to play... 90 minutes of overall hockey to pass Tan, uh, Tanner Pearson in the aggregate with only four games remaining. That's like 25 minutes. He's not going to get there. He, he's not going to get there in terms of, of aggregate ice time. And he's definitely not going to get there in terms of average ice time. So, um, you know, that, that the time on ice bonus, which he does have, that's out the window for, for pod goals. And, but the plus minus bonus, that's, that's very possible. I'm going to invite Ben C. up to the uh, chat now. Ben C., welcome to the stage. How are you, sir? Good. How are you guys? You guys hear me? We got you. Okay. Uh, 
So I just have a bit of a comment. It's not really a question. It's more of a take that I'm curious of your opinion on. Um, so it's disappointing at the end of the season, obviously, that the Canucks lost, but it was a really fun run to watch them play some interesting games at the end of the year. But in my opinion, this was a really crucial way for the year to go with us losing because of with Benning in charge, we were never going to build a playoff contender. He just didn't seem to have the long-term sight for it. And management really, uh, like the owners, really loved Benning. And they were never going to get rid of him without there being a disastrous start to a season. So I think that it was kind of a necessary way for the season to go for the team to move ahead in the future. Thank you. Um, great, uh, great take. I, I agree with you entirely, Ben. And yeah, I mean, I think, I think you're right. I think ownership, ownership loved the guy. Clearly, clearly they loved having him as their GM. And I do think that there were severe limitations imposed on the club by that situation. Clearly we've seen it play out for eight years. I think we're going to continue to see it play out. Um, you know, frankly, Frankly, I think the scars of the pandemic are going to shape the next couple of years of Canucks history, um, you know, still, like still. And when I sort of think back, like what, what happened since the bubble, I think is really crucial. It's really crucial to understand all of that because I sort of believe, Farhan, and, and tell me if you, you disagree with this. I sort of believe that if not for the pandemic, right? If not for the pandemic, I sort of believe that this team might have been one of those like mushy middle perennial playoff teams for a while. I'll be honest with you. I think I think that what happened after the bubble, the team leaves the bubble and the budget gets cut. They're a bottom 10 spender. And all of a sudden, this team that expected to be able to do normal stuff like extend their coach or, you know, talk extension with. Pedersen and Hughes, um, or continue extension talks with Jacob Markstrom, or, you know, re-sign Tyler Toffoli, which was for sure, like before the pandemic, re-signing Toffoli and Markstrom were organizational priorities. And on the other side of the bubble, Toffoli was an afterthought because the club didn't have enough money to do that and upgrade their defense. And so they lose, you know, these really important cultural guys. They become a bottom 10 spending team. All sorts of short-sighted moves get made because there's all this stress on everyone in the organization. And none of it works. The Holtby signing for Tannen, not trading for Tannen, letting all those good people walk. And you can't underrate either the impact of those people walking, right? Like Jacob Markstrom was such a crucial buffer for Green in the room, for example, right? Uh, Chris Tanev was this vital cog, culturally speaking. And so at the end of the season, I'm not exactly sure why, but the club decides to make zero changes. They bring Travis Green back. They bring Jim Benning back. Uh, you know, it's it's the same same old story, but with a Sedin tinge to it. And all of a sudden, the taps are back on. The AHL affiliates here. And the goal, the, the, the goal is not to do as Jim Benning himself had suggested they should wait a year and hurdle some of their bad money, but instead it's to accelerate making the playoffs. 
And so to do that, they make this trade where they trade a bunch of bad money up front to the Arizona Coyotes in exchange for a massive commitment that the Coyotes, frankly, never even believed they'd ever get it off of. Um, they sign a bridge deal. Like one of the one of the parts of one of the short sighted moves that were made this offseason in benefit of this team, which is not going to make the playoffs, was signing Pedersen to a bridge deal. Like the logic of the bridge deal is that the savings incurred by not locking up an elite piece long term are used to put in to make the team better during the life of that bridge. And in year one of that gamble, you know, Pedersen becomes one of the best players in hockey in the last four months of the year. And the Canucks miss. I mean, that's worst case scenario. And here's what happens when organizations very rapidly change direction multiple times in consecutive seasons. Like it leaves you stuck, right? All of a sudden, all of a sudden the club lost some of their best people one year because they went cheap. And then they made all sorts of misguided short-term gambles the next year because all of a sudden there's this rush to improve and the resources are back. You can't manage an organization that that moves the goalposts like that. Like you cannot do it. Well, especially when especially when nobody kind of owns what happened coming out of the bubble, right? Now I think they were going to let Tanev walk anyway because there was no way they could keep all those pieces, right? They invested a lot to get to Foley. Maybe they're smart enough to bring him back in that year. Um, you know, certainly they were talking extension with Markstrom. Culturally, losing him hurts um, from a hockey perspective. It didn't necessarily because Demko has been really good, right? Like goaltending hasn't been the problem. Um, but, you know, w- when we talk about culture issues, which I talked about in the last show and then put into context at the beginning of this show, it's not that there's bad culture in the room. It's just that there's good culture pieces missing that haven't necessarily been replaced. Right. So from a culture standpoint, you're not wrong um, from an actual hockey standpoint. You know, you wonder whether they would have been able to do enough. Right. Like does Markstrom uh, improving the culture? Because, again, the goaltending was already good with Danko. Right. Does Markstrom improving the culture and Toffoli coming back? Is that enough to get them in the playoffs a year ago? And we all know how great Toffoli was in the All-Canada division, especially against the Canucks. But like I said, Tanev was going anyway. They couldn't afford all of them. And they just weren't going to bet that four times four was a smart amount of money to pay a guy that's been chronically injured and plays that style well, of game. Right? But they, so, they, at the end of the day, they were making offers to him, right? It wasn't that Tanev wasn't... Yeah, but that's because everybody else kind of fell apart and got right. away from it. It wasn't right? that Tanev was sure going to go. It's just that he, before the pandemic they were mixed there was mixed um views on the risk and the offer they were going to make him wasn't close to what calgary no, but did, right like they were going you, where calgary but if you went. have it done early if you have the budget done early like tanev would have probably stayed for less if you'd got it done i mean it was a crucial contract for him so maybe not but you at least would have got in the room you at least wouldn't have been ghosted by him because you never made him an offer until after calgary was on the hook Right, which is how it played out. So I don't think you can understand the first 25 games of the season, nor do I think you can pin it solely on, on the head coach without understanding all of that scarring. And I want to note, by the way, I speak a little bit from experience here. Like one thing that happened when I was with the Florida Panthers, right, was the club massively changed. You're with the Florida Panthers. Have you ever, ever brought it up? Um, the club massively changed no. direction right, after making the playoffs in 15-16 and decided to go, like, hard into analytics. And there were some really good moves made there, including, including by the way, the extensions that Barkov, Huberto, and Ekblad are still currently on. Huberto's tied for the scoring lead at $5.7 million. 
Barkov this season, he signed an extension prior to the year that kicks in next year. Barkov's still making less than $6 million this season. You think that's the best team in hockey right now? If those guys are, are paid market value, if those guys get bridged? Um, and there's no way without that management change that those guys would have signed the deals that they ended up on. So you change direction, you go in this analytics direction, Marsh so comes in, the Riley Smith trade, on and on. And then the very next year, not even the very next year, four or five months into the season, it's not really going well. And they change direction again. And then you go into the expansion draft and all of those principles, all of the sort of logic of the moves you'd made gets undone within one year, right? All of a sudden, Jason Demers is traded for Jamie McGinn and Marsha Sow's left unprotected and Riley Smith's traded and, and you get stuck and you would have been better off. You would have been better off sticking with either direction, right? Like you actually end up in the worst possible place by changing direction, by pivoting that quickly from one thing to another. And that's basically what happened to the Canucks during the last two seasons. And I think the scars of that um, are vital, like vital to understand if you want to understand why this team's season has played out the way it has, in my in my view anyway. And, and sort of the task at hand to correct it is a steep one, in my view, for Rutherford, even though this team has played to 110-point pace roughly under Bruce Boudreaux over 52 games, a, a not insignificant sample. You know, there's still a lot of work to do to get back on track, pick a direction, stick to it, and stick to it over the number of years required with, with a level of discipline required to compete with the best teams in this league. Um, do you have anything to add? Well, I want to I want to bring up the Bruce Boudreaux contract situation. I know that Dolly Wall reported earlier today that, you know, the, the winds are changing a little bit in the sense he's getting that they want him back now and that it's just about getting an extension done. But th- there is a, there seems to be a bit more of a commitment to do that, how uh, how important is oh, that? Vital, vital. And I can tell you, too, that Bruce Boudreaux met with his agent this week. Uh, I know that. Um, I don't I don't think there's clarity on exactly which way it's going to go yet on either side. But I do think that Dolly Wall's reporting is dead on. I do think the team's going to do their best here. Uh, I don't expect that we'll see something announced in season. Although, you know, if the winds have changed and Boudreaux's meeting with his agent all in the same week, uh, maybe, maybe that's. You know, not something you should take to the bank. But my guess would be after the season, the club will do what they can to get to bring Boudreaux back, as they should. Although, of course, the leverage on both sides has has dramatically changed, right? Um, Boudreaux has certainly made his case, and there's going to be something like 10 job vacancies around the league right now. So uh, Vancouver needs to do what they can to make sure that this guy stays, in my view. No brainer. No brainer. All right. I'm going to invite Renil P. Renil P. I hope I said that right, Renil. Welcome to the stage. Can you hear us? Good, sir. Can you hear us? Going once, going twice. All right. I'm going to invite Cole P to the stage. Cole P, can you hear us? Hello? Yeah, gotcha. All right. Welcome. All right. Hey, Welcome. hey um, just uh, a, you know, a hot take for a comment and then a question. First off, just building off the uh, the the bit on scar tissue there, I think what Bruce Boudreaux has done with his team and this push, you know, to the to the red zone and ultimately they came up short. I think this is going to be so important for this team because you know you could see it over the last couple of years. Just the to- I think there was a toxic environment and and 
you know, the free agents who left indicated in some of their, their interviews. And so there was, there's clearly something wrong going on. And, and I, I, I just think this drive, even though they came up short is, is really going to help the psyche of these players in going into the next season on a right foot, as opposed to a wrong foot, if it just continued to be a dumpster fire. Um, and then the question, ever since the lotto line kind of went, you know, MIA and we've, we've never seen it, we, we haven't really had a top line. And I'm, I'm just wondering if we're maybe seeing the start of a top line with Pedersen, Besser and, and uh, Garland here since, since uh, JT Miller may be leaving and, and maybe this is how we, we get a new number one line. Uh, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I think the key to the top line, to answering the top line question, uh, was that, you know, it depends on whether or not Garland and Besser are back, right? We can't count on that being a new Canucks top line when the statuses of two-thirds of it seems to be very much in the air, up in the air. Uh, so, you know, I love Patterson with Besser. I, I, I don't think you should ever mess with that. It would be a big reason why I'd try and find a way to get Besser done in a relatively team-friendly clip. As for as for um, Garland, yeah, I mean, I think the fit there is obvious. I love having the club's best playmaking righty with with Pedersen's bomb shot. I think that's a fantastic battery to go with. I think they should stick with it. I love I love the idea of seeing those three play together for a long time. But um, you know, we'll see. Like we'll see. It depends so much on what this roster looks like next year. Farhan. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. Like, I'd like to see all three of them play together. I think there's some chemistry there. And, and you know, we've talked about Miller, Garland, and Besser, and there's seemingly no reasonable way all three of them can be brought back. We understand that Besser has leverage based on his contractual status. But based on his performance, you just, you know, you threw out there, oh, you know, a team-friendly clip. And I'm wondering what a team-friendly clip looks like, given the up-and-down season, more injuries, but a $7.5 million qualifying offer that he doesn't necessarily have to work that far off of. So what does a reasonable, realistic, team-friendly deal look like for Brock Besser? Um, I mean, for me, for me, what I'd be trying to accomplish would be $6 million times five structured so that the contract salary in year one is $7.5 million, right? So that he gets his qualifying offer in terms of real salary but at a lower cap it. Now, is that possible? Maybe not. Maybe it has to be six, five um, and six years, but something in that, in and around that vein to me is, uh, you know, maybe it's not the most team friendly contract, but Brock Besser's the top line producer. I, I don't have a problem with him at that level personally, but I, I, you know, your appetite may vary and Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin's appetite may vary based on, you know, um, based on Besser's overall, you know, skill set and, and what they view as his fit versus their vision for how they want this team to play. Yeah, I just wonder if he's ever going to live up to it, right? And, and six times five isn't that onerous. Uh, if you can get that done and you talk about structuring it so it's front-loaded, um, you know, it, it might be a fit, but I still think Brock Besser's got a lot to prove. And, you know, A, he's got to prove he can stay healthy, but B, he's got to prove that he can score consistently. As always say when we talk about this guy is that he's a streaky scorer and he's always playing with an elite center. Yeah, but but everyone in hockey is a streaky scorer. Everyone except Alex Ovechkin and Austin Matthews is a streaky scorer. Like that's 
the nature of goal scoring. It, it ebbs and flows. For me, anyway. Um, but, the, but so much of his, I, I suppose, but so much of his game, like you can see it in him, right? Like the level of confidence when he's scoring, his 2A impact goes through the roof. When he's not scoring, he's invisible on so many levels. Like I, I yeah. just. Well, the other problem. He's the first to admit it, right? The like other he, problem. He's the is, first to admit it, that his confidence wanes. The other problem is he's not in a space on a power on the power play that helps drive the goal score. Right. So all of a sudden he's kind of climbing uphill. Like if you're a 20 goal scorer and you're playing net front on the power play and you're not a really natural net front fit, like it's pretty good. Pretty good. Um, sure. But then you've got him and Garland and we're talking about Garland on PP one and trying to get more out of him. They would both play that left side. Well, if, or, or Garland could play at the net front. I mean, that's the real answer that, that, you know, I, I mean, I'd love to see Garland play at the net front personally. I think he could be a massive pain in everyone's rear in that spot. And, you know, obviously you prefer to have a prototypical big frame guy, but Garland wins his share battles and a lot of screening. Like, you know, one of the best screeners I've ever seen is Kyle Elwood. <laughs> he wasn't exactly a huge guy, at least not, <laughs> at least not vertically. So, um, you know, I, I think, uh, anyway, I think the, I think the, I think there's ways to, to fit both guys in, but it is tough. All right. Um, some, some, my, my brother-in-law has dropped by the chat to talk about lemon ball and people are asking me what lemon ball is. Um, I'm down in Southern California right now. I come back this weekend and we've got a pool and overhanging the pool is the lemon tree, fresh citrus every day. It's beautiful. And, <laughs> and when the lemons fall into the pool, they float, right? So one day my brother-in-law and I get into the pool and there's a lemon floating and we all, as anyone does, we start hucking the lemon around. And so lemon ball is a game of catch with rules. And the rules are that you get three drops, basically. Your first drop, you become sick. Your second drop, you become dead. Your third drop, you're buried and you're out. And whoever is not buried has won the game. Uh, the only other way to move from healthy to sick to dead to buried is to throw a bad throw. And the wrinkle in the game is that the person catching, if they touch the lemon at any point, then they have to own that it was their failure to catch. But they get to call whether or not it's a bad throw or not. So it's really a game of trust. You have to go for some so that other people will go for your throws. And if you call someone out on, on a totally fine throw, then obviously they're just not going to try to catch your lemon hucks. And as a result, you will quickly move to sick, dead, and buried. And the overarching rule of the game, too, because there's no kickbacks. There's no like, okay, well, let's just reset. Every dropped lemon must result in someone moving from healthy to sick to dead to buried. So the overarching rule is blood must be spilled. And that is the game of lemon ball. It is a house game um, uh, in my in my uh, Southern California vacation spot. All right. Have you been a, have, you, have you been on the DL as a result of this? No, okay? I'm totally okay. But I've played maybe 40 hours of lemon ball over the course of the past three weeks. Oh, oh yeah. God. Yeah. Like I had all my friends down here. We crushed cases of wine and I'm not, I'm not messing around like from 11 AM to 4 PM almost every day. We play like five straight hours of lemon ball. The only restriction on lemon ball is, is if Wallace is outside, uh, he tries to jump into the pool and play monkey in the middle and swim after the lemons. So you can only really play it when he's napping. All right. Um, let's get back to, uh, let's get back to the people of, in our queue. All right. Renil 
is back, and I want to give him a chance to ask a question. Renil, do you have us? I gotcha. Can you guys uh, hear me all right? We do. We can. We do. Excellent. Um, so uh, Ryan Johnson and uh, uh, Curtis Sanford, I guess, uh, mined a lot of value out of that Spencer Martin trade. Um, and there's a big asterisk and there's future considerations involved. Uh, do you see um, Tampa trying to mine some value out of that uh, in the future? Or do you think it's just a bag of pucks going the other way? Uh, Renil, I actually know the answer to this. It is, in fact, a bag of pucks going the other way. Um, trades cannot be for nothing. So you cannot make a trade that does not have a return in the NHL. So oftentimes, future considerations means there's no return. Um, sometimes future considerations are real things. I've heard of, I've heard of, you know, uh, big market teams like committing budget to fixing up a, another club's AHL facility as <laughs> future considerations. Um, it can be all sorts of all manner of items, but in the case of Spencer Martin, that was a free acquisition future considerations is a paper consideration only. Um, Derek H is next in our queue. I'm going to invite Derek H to the stage. Derek, how are you? Good. You? Well, thanks, man. I, you, earlier you uh, mentioned um, o, OEL and the uh, blue, the blue line. Are, are you sort of saying that maybe his contract is too big and he, she should be dealt or what are you, what, what were you, what were you trying to uh, say to say yeah. there? Thanks, Derek. I'm happy to clarify. So to clarify for you, Derek, the what I was talking about was that for me, OEL needs to be managed a little bit differently going forward. Like, I think you need to find a way to make it so that OEL is playing fewer minutes over the course of the season. Because if you're going to make the playoffs, if you're going to make a run toward the back half of the season, you're going to need this 30, you know, early 30s defenseman to be peaking. At the right time, and with what we know about rest, with the demands of being a shutdown guy at the NHL level, like I think you need to have him play, if not traditional third pair minutes, then certainly a more prescribed role. Not dissimilar from what we were talking about for years with Alex Edler during his waning years with the Vancouver Canucks. I think they need to find, and maybe it's Travis Dermott, but they need to find like a second pair lefty who can play a pretty prominent role for this club. Uh, so that you can manage Oliver Ekman Larson's load over the course of the season. And, and my point was that if Myers is a $6 million guy who you ideally want playing 16 minutes a night, five on five, and Oliver Ekman Larson is a $7.26 million guy who you ideally want playing 15 minutes a night, five on five, then all of a sudden you've got an awful lot of money committed to guys whose usage needs to be prescribed pretty carefully. And that's a hard way to live in a hard cap league. That's what I was saying there. Um, do we have any other? Uh, our, our queue is empty, uh, so let's uh, let's chat for four more minutes here, Farhan, and then we'll um, and then we'll uh, give it. If anyone else wants to raise their hand and have their say or guide our conversation anyway, uh, we'll give you until nine fifteen to put your hand up. If you're in the queue, we'll take your question. If not, we'll uh, we'll wrap this up. But you know, I think to summarize where we're at, right? The Vancouver Canucks played really well. It was a gutsy performance in Minnesota, but they've fallen short. And they've fallen short of the playoffs. And they've fallen short of the playoffs in a year that was an all-in year. So much of these clubs' assets were marshaled to make the playoffs this season. Everything from Pedersen signing a bridge deal to, you know, trading $12 million worth of expiring contracts for long-term commitments to trading consecutive first-round picks. 
Um, we're now left with a non-playoff team who performed really well under a new coach, but doesn't have much in the way of cap flexibility, doesn't have much in the way of prospects in the system coming, and, you know, is kind of stuck here. And I think it's going to take a lot of work now to avoid falling into the Philly trap, <laughs> the the mushy middle, the the, you know, being just good enough to not really win it all and not bad enough to bottom out and get the elite talent that ultimately makes a difference over the long haul in the NHL. And and that's a really tough place to be. Now, there's a lot of good young roster players here, and I think you can take a lot of heart from how this team performed under Boudreaux. Maybe, maybe this team's only a tweak or two away, but I think that I think the redesign that's necessary both in the bottom six and on the blue line is significant. And I don't know how you accomplish it without clearing significant cap space and, you know, not punting on the next couple seasons, but certainly being willing to replace high salaried players with far more economical bets, both on the free agency market via trade and, you know, through amateur scouting and uh, retaining college free agents and the like. So uh, that's kind of where we're at as we, as we put a bow on, you know, a, a pretty difficult night. I mean, this is it. Like, I think the Canucks have missed the playoffs now. And and I, I can say that not as a take, not as a, come on, they're not going to make the playoffs like I've been doing for months, but I think as a fact. And that's too bad because they played well and they showed a lot of guts. They showed a lot of guts leaving it until late April for us to finally and at last conclude that this team's not going to get it done. Yeah, and like you're right, it is a fact at this stage. I know it's not a mathematical fact, but it is a realistic and practical fact. And no one has glee in saying that. I think everybody realizes it. But the truth is, is that, you know, as we said right off the top, we've had a lot of meaningful hockey. And I know that you've kind of dismissed the notion, right, of, of what does that really mean and what's the value from that. But from a fan's perspective, you know, rather than the death march, I think they've had a, a lot to enjoy. And what this team has been able to accomplish since December 5th has been remarkable. It really has. And Again, you don't want to put yourself in a situation where you're fooled into thinking this is who they are and this is a finished product and they can roll into next year and expect to play with the best of the best. Could they potentially be a fringe playoff team? You know, obviously, you know, what we saw under Travis Green um, probably wasn't who they were. Right. Right. They're somewhere. They're somewhere in the middle between the Boudreaux Canucks and the Green Canucks. And Green had them underperforming, and Boudreaux has them overperforming. But overperforming means there's a level which would they, they really need to lie. So don't get caught up thinking this is the group they've got to bring back. They still have to take a big-picture approach. And, and I've got to believe that Alvin and Rutherford are prepared to do that. I think they've seen this with their eyes wide open. Um, I'm curious to see what the creative solutions are in terms of trying to create the cap flexibility, which they know is first and foremost. The prospect pipeline is thin. They've yet to sign any of these American are any of the uh, the European free agents or any of the, the college free agents yet. But, I mean, obviously, there's still time uh, to do some of that. But they're going to have to be creative, and they're going to have to find some value in some areas that we didn't think they could find. Because when you look down at the minor league system, you know, and you look at players that will potentially be NHL regulars at any point, like, you know, as far as forwards are concerned, it's maybe Danila Klimovich, right? Like, that's it. Yeah. As far as guys that are in Maybe average, Lockwood. You know, you look at guys like Dry. Yeah, and Lockwood, that's fair. I'm just not thinking of him because he's already here right now. But, you know, guys like Dries and Patan and Rempel are always going to be up and down, be regular NHLers, and, and that's what what the past has been for them, and that's likely where they're headed at this point as well. So 
where can you find guys? Who do you want to invest in? Who do you want to bet on? You want to bet on Kyle Burroughs to be a guy next year that can be a regular here and he can bring you some some bite and some edge and can take some minutes away from some of these other guys. Like, who are the guys that you're going to bet on? Uh, because whether they're in the building now or whether you're signing them, you know, as a, um, a European player or as another, you know, under, another uh, NCAA player, regardless, like you're still making a bet. You're still rolling the dice on some of these guys. So we'll see. We'll see how good their their eyes is in terms of being able to find those players that can help next year. All right, let's. Uh, we have three in the queue. This is it. This is all we're taking, and then we'll wrap up the show. Just want to thank everyone for taking part in two of these this week. We have so much fun doing them and interacting with you guys and teaching you the ins and outs of the CBA and also Lemon Ball. So uh, thank you for joining us. Here's Arthur A. Arthur, welcome to the stage. Can you hear us? Yeah, how are you guys doing? Well, how are you? I'm Uh, doing good. Uh, Just a couple questions Uh, regarding. uh, I forgot the players. uh, The the popular Russian Kuzmenko. I think Kuzmenko. Is there going to be any possible chance of Canucks maybe being uh, maybe like one of his top five choices? As well as you know, having a new management now and one being an ex-player uh, agent, does that give the Canucks an inside edge in terms of contract negotiations, as well as bringing in some certain uh, free agents? Knowing that this is a pretty much a progressive front office. Thank you for the questions, Arthur. Let's start with Kuzmenko. Um, you know, something like eighty percent of the league is going to be in on this. I'm, I'm working on a piece right now with Dollywall. We'll have more on this in the days to come, but. Um, yeah, there's going to be a lot of interest. I think the Canucks are going to have a decent shot at being one of the, you know, I don't want to say they're going to be a front runner, but I think they've got a decent shot at being among the teams under serious consideration for Kuzmenko and his agent, Dan Milstein of Red Star Sports. Um, you know, the Pittsburgh Penguins have done a lot of work on this. I think there's a relationship there with, um, New Canucks management, former Pittsburgh Penguins management. I think there's a decent shot that they're um, going to be among the teams with a shot, with a real chance of landing him. However, however, one thing that I'm curious to see is the complications, the potential complications stemming from work visas for Russian nationals, particularly with the war going on. Uh, you'll recall that Vasily Podkolzin's paperwork was, you know, in process for four months right like beginning three weeks before he signed and concluding just days before training camp opened Vasily Podkolzin was you know a a really it was really tough to get that across the line and that was before there was a war between Russia as a belligerent nation in the Ukraine so um you know could it be more difficult for Kuzmenko to sign with a Canadian team Uh, There's certainly some question out there regarding that within the industry. And and certainly if the Canucks don't feel that they're going to be able to get the work visa done, you'd think that would influence their decision making there. So that's the rough shape of the Kuzmenko um, situation. I do think the Canucks are very interested. Uh, I know the Canucks are very interested. I think he may have some interest in coming here, particularly in the event that the team makes some moves and frees up some ice time, potential ice time for a skilled player uh, of his ilk. Uh, so we'll see where that one goes. As for the impact of Assistant General Manager Emile Castonguay uh, and her agent experience, I think it can only help to have someone with that experience. Although 
you know, we'll see what roles exactly everyone kind of fills into. Um, I'd expect in time that Emily will be the lead negotiator in addition to running the cap day to day. But at the moment, you know, I do think that Ryan Johnson's still sort of the point man on, on cap management. Um, it's going to take some time for a new look management group with a ton of new faces and not a ton of built in relationships aside from Alvin Clancy and Jim Rutherford, I think, to work together and figure out how to complement one another within this, you know, dynamic progressive group that Rutherford has tried to construct. So we'll see how that one goes. Farhan, anything to add? No, not really. I mean, you, as far as, uh, like, I don't know a ton about the player, uh, but uh, certainly have read the reports that he's on his way, and that's the type of player they're going to have to find a way to attract, right? And, and maybe what they've done in these last four months is enough to do that, coupled with those relationships. But, you know, if I'm one of those guys and I'm looking in, uh, I'd be looking at, you know, I'd look at this team as a place where I could potentially get some big opportunity at the front door. Yep. All right. David D. David, welcome to the stage. You got us? Hi, can you hear me? Thank you for joining us. What do you want to talk about, sir? Hi, first time caller, long time <laughs> listener. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just wanted to talk about uh, Bruce Boudreau and the Canucks seemingly switching the sales and being interested in re-signing him because I think I think a lot of us think that if JT Miller is going to get traded, like that's a hundred points there that that's going to be out the window and that you have to replace. I don't think the Canucks, I think they're going to have a hard time replacing that. So when you have a draft that's as deep as next year with Bedard and Mitchkov, isn't it kind of counterintuitive to have such a winning coach for the team if they decide to take a step back? That's a really good question, David. Thank you. Um, Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of all aboard the try and get Connor Bedard train personally, but there's a big problem with that, and it's not even who your coach is. It's that you have Thatcher Demko, who I think is going to steal you 30 games, no matter what you have in front of him every year going forward, at least if he you know, maintains the form he showed this season. I don't think you can tank with a goaltender like Demko, period. And so I don't know that the coach matters nearly as much as that. Uh, if you've got a guy who's going to play the way that Demko has played the last two seasons for stretches of you know two months where he's nigh impenetrable i mean there's not a lot you can do like demko demko would win 25 games behind the arizona coyotes i think so um you know i I don't know how you tank frankly um and i don't think this organization would desire to do that anyway for a variety of internal reasons but i don't know how you tank any no matter what so long as you have thatcher demko on the roster not to mention elias petterson um not to mention bruce boudreau potentially back so it's. I don't think they're going to be bad enough, quickly enough, um, to to really be in the Fantilli Mitchkov um, Bedard mix. Farhan. Yeah, you know we've talked about this before about about positioning yourself for draft picks and trying to deal with the deep pain and the heavy cuts that allow you to really mine elite players. And you know there is a dance there that you've got to make, be able to make sure you can do. And when you've got players like Pedersen and Quinn Hughes in the building, it, it becomes tough given what they've dealt with to this point, right? So you mentioned that they they are not bad enough because they do have some high-end players starting with the goaltender. So it's it's practically not possible, but, you know, emotionally, it's hard. I mean, you've got Pedersen on a bridge deal, right? You know Hughes is going to be here six years or another five years. You have Pedersen on a bridge deal. There's two more years of pain. You may not be getting him back, right? Or, 
he may force his way out at that point. I know they still have club control for another year after that, but I just don't know that it's possible to put yourself in that situation. And even then, you're not going to get the Edmonton Oilers luck where you, you know, the system's not set up that way that you're locked into that pick, right? You are correct. All right, one last question. This one's from Levy F. Levy, welcome to the stage. Thank you for uh, thank you for putting your hand up. Hi, uh, yeah, uh, thanks. Um, my question had to do kind of what the last caller was talking about with the uh, with the draft lottery, or yeah. And um, I was wondering, like, I've looked it up online like quite a few times, and I can't seem to figure out what the new system is uh, this year and next, um, because I understand uh, a team that wins can't go up more than ten spots. And like it, it, and on that note, I also heard that there's where you can't win that lot, lottery like twice in a row or something like that. So I wonder if you know, as as the season comes to a close here, as a Canucks fan, if we should honestly be hoping that we don't win the or, or don't move up in this draft, and because if we do, would that like preclude us from you know moving up potentially in the next draft, which looks to be uh, deeper? Thanks. Yeah, I need to uh, figure that out. To be honest with you, I I think you can win the draft lottery multiple years um oh okay so you can't win the draft lottery more than twice in a five-year period but oh yeah and draft lottery wins prior to so yeah sounds like teams will be restricted from moving up more than 10 spots and you can't win the lottery more than twice in a five-year period so you're correct Levy. if they win the draft lottery this year and move up 10 points um or move up 10 spots they can't win it again so, yeah, maybe you do want to root against it, but I think you probably just want to root for it. I mean, you you hope you hope that you're not going to be in the draft lottery more than two times in Elias Pettersson's age 24 through 27 seasons. If you are, something has gone terribly wrong, terribly wrong. I think this club, I think <laughs> this club's looking at being in the draft lottery this year and next and thereafter. You should not be in the draft lottery, in my opinion. If this rebuild or if this retool or whatever we're about to embark on, and we'll we'll have to wait to see what proof is in the pudding. Um, if this lasts more than two years, considering the raw talent, the elite, high-end, top-of-the-lineup young talent on this roster right now, something has gone horribly, horribly wrong. And yeah, it's the Canucks, so something can always go horribly, horribly wrong. Don't get me wrong. But yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't be worried about it. I wouldn't be worried about like future draft lottery wins. If you get to move up to the sixth overall pick this year, that's a fantastic win. Take your Denton Matichuk and, and laugh your way home. Yeah, I can't. I'm curious to see what the messaging is going to be on that front because you say two years being in the draft lottery. And if whether or not this new management team is going to be able to, you know, pull the New York Rangers and be completely transparent, uh, you know, in a message to their season ticket holders and just say, look, this is what we're going to do. This is what it's going to look like. And it might not feel good or vice versa but i'm curious to see what the messaging is going to be once we get to the season ending news conference in a couple weeks here i agree and then what moves we see this off season and we'll be covering that at length probably with some of these live rooms over the course of the off season hey everybody thank you so much for joining us we love having a chance to chat with you uh this was a particularly interesting night particularly because um you know it meant so much to the canucks like it meant so much to their play playoff chances I don't think there's any drama or suspense left in terms of where this season is going. Um, you know, I do think that this is it. I do think the Canucks are going to miss the playoffs for, I believe it's the seventh time in the last eight years, Farhan, a stretch unparalleled in franchise history. Um, tough, tough for the organization, for sure, particularly with all the assets pushed into the middle of the table. But I do think we can take some 
silver lining anyway from the way the club performed uh, after Bruce Boudreaux was hired in early December. The ultimate moral victory, my man. We'll see you again. That next next Vancast is on Monday. Won't be a live room, but we'll look forward to bringing it. Well, and we're going to do it in person because uh, Farhan drove me across the border and I left all of Wallace's um, documentation at his house. So I've got to pick it up on my way home anyway. Wallace, Wallace, Wallace and Luna can hang. Oh, out. you know what? That'll be lovely. I'm very much looking forward to them meeting. Um, all right. Well, be well, everybody. Thank you for joining us. We'll we'll, we'll do it again next week. All the best, be well, from us at the Bandcast.